Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast, Season 1, Episode 9. And this episode is all about a new film premiering at the LA Film Festival in late September called Same God. And I'm talking about that because I'm an executive producer on it, and, um, and I'm going to be talking a bit tonight about, about controversy, dialogue, and overcoming our biases. Um, I'm going to give credit to this one to Jan Dubovan from Sweden. Uh, Jan chimes in on my Facebook and uh, a lot of the posts we do quite a bit. Um, I want to thank you, Jan, for pushing me to make this podcast this week. Uh, you said it on some comments on a post I made uh, last week, and so now I'm doing it. So thank you, Jan. Um, it also ties into a book that I just finished reading. It was a gift from Steve Marty, who, uh, after our interview, uh, that you may have heard, I think it was episode seven, it, and the book is titled "Leading from Your Gut" by Dr. John Townsend. Um, John co-created the Boundaries books with Dr. Henry Cloud, that some of you might be familiar with. "Leading from Your Gut" is all about the importance of values and numbers in leadership. That you have to have them together. Um, that we can't just do it effectively from numbers alone, which is kind of where a lot of management comes from. But we need a qualitative filter that organizes our quantitative analysis. It's a great book. It, uh, it sounds kind of uh, maybe a little too academic the way I just described it, but it's all about leading from your heart, your gut, and, and recognizing the value of your emotions, um, that there is real inherent value there in intuition and the things, if you can listen to it and understand how to leverage it and use it with the quantitative analysis, with the numbers and the things you can measure. Um, so buy that book, read it. It's incredibly, it's a, really an incredible book, Leading from Your Gut by Do Dr. John Townsend. Um, and it's sort of funny that right after last week's episode that included some really, like literally some solid gold from Brene Brown, um, you know, from her TED Talk about not only the si significance of vulnerability and allowing people to, to, you know, experience joy, love, and wonder, but also why when we can't let go of predictability and control, you know, those kind of those, the, the scientific method running our world today, kind of in this post-age of enlightenment we live in, um, then we can't have dialogue. I posted, so this week I posted about a film that shouldn't be as controversial as it, as it was. Um, and I want to talk about that. What I'd like to do in this podcast is walk through some background on a really exciting documentary film project that Linda Midget, uh, another Wheaton alumnus with me, is directing and producing, and that Kathy Treat, another uh, Kathy Bolthouse Treat, maybe I should say, for some of you who are listening from Wheaton. Um, she was Kathy Bolthouse when we were there, and um, although I didn't really know Linda and Kathy when we were in school, I got to know them a lot better later through mutual friends and, alum and alumni networks that we kind of created on our own when uh, kind of we, we gave up on the schools program. So anyways, um, Linda's producing it and directing it. Kathy Treat and I were kind of the first executive producers to come in and work with her creatively and financially and on the business case. And then uh, Abigail Disney, yes, that Disney, <laughs> um, has also, uh, also uh, become an, an executive producer and been a really great um, uh, not only a financial contributor, but really a, a fantastic um, creative contributor to the film. So um, I'm really excited that we're a part of this, that we're executive producing it, and um, that we just got into the LA Film Festival, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, they're only screening 10 documentaries, and we're one of them this year. And uh, we're in some other ones. We're in the New Orleans Film Festival, and we'll be releasing other dates and locations as these come out. Um, but I want to actually explain what the project is and then maybe dig into the controversy and, uh, and why I think it's important um, to both host some controversy from time to time on social media to hopefully demonstrate how to manage controversial topics and have dialogue and discussion in a civil manner, <laughs> um, but also how vulnerability within those boundaries has delivered some really substantial insights and, and maybe even breakthroughs this week. So if you're just tuning into this podcast, it's all about breaking through barriers in our lives and creating the life we want. I'm doing this podcast in response to literally thousands of questions I've received about how my partners and I created an energy drink brand, the Excess brand, uh, which now extends into to a lot of other things, into uh, sports nutrition and basically functional foods and beverages. Um, and, and so when somebody says, you know, how'd you create it? What I take that to mean is how can I create the life that I want to live? So creating the life we want requires that we develop ourselves, that we scare ourselves a little bit every day, and that we intentionally listen to our failures, um, that we expand and we progress. 
One deeply important part of personal development is self-knowledge. Who am I? Who are you? As Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> and some of, our, some of our hardest limitations to overcome are, are, are well, this is a tough one, are our own biases. They're hard to overcome because they're so hard to see. Um, it's not always fun to hear about them from someone else. And so, you know, a lot of times we'll put up defenses and fight back. And most of us have built up a lot of defenses of, of reasons, of logical rationalizations, why we're right, why others are wrong, um, before we even hear them. And so we end up shouting at each other rather than listening to each other. But I think we're all on a journey. Uh, hopefully our lives continue to progress and the really big mysterious truths are something we wrestle with. You know, it's not less about answering those, those questions or, or, or un even understanding those, those truths. It's about wrestling with them and trying to at least get a piece of it or a part of it. Um, and as we wrestle with them, hopefully they touch us, they change us, they transform us and maybe even potentially rename us. Um, you know, maybe it some, might, might sound like a story from the Bible to people who've read that book, right? But today um, was a travel day for me. Last week I recorded from Kyoto in southern Japan, and since then I've traveled to Tokyo, then on to Bangkok and Chiang Mai in Thailand. Um, we had some great pre-launch events there, really redefined training and, and made the work fun. Still got to do the hard work, but if we can make it fun, then maybe it's not so rough. And... Um, you know, we did all kinds of things like zip lining in the jungle, dance fighting, <laughs> and uh, in, in Chiang Mai, and doing some some great parties and DJing event there, as well as pre training, and and with two of our youngest and largest business uh, partners from Thailand, Patrick and Joyce Joe, founders, Crown ambassadors. It was a fun, a ton of fun, but also a little taxing. So here's what's kind of interesting. I was pretty tired when I got to Bangkok last night. I had to go from Chiang Mai to Bangkok. It's a flight, and in transit. Then today I was flying back to Kuala Lumpur pretty early, which is another country. It's Malaysia. Um, and then later this week, I'm going to go to Borneo again uh, to Kota Kinabalu. So I've got a lot of things going on, a lot of travel, a lot of you know activities and events. They're very physical. They're very fun, but it's it's taxing. Um, yeah, but by the way, Kota Kinabalu <laughs> is on the northwest uh, corner of Borneo. It's up, uh, kind of almost touches the Philippines. It's, it's you know, sits, Borneo sits right in between kind of Thailand, Malaysia, and then kind of Indonesia wraps around it, and then the Philippines is up to the north of it. So I'm going to be there in the South China Sea. All this to say that when I got a text message last night pretty late as I arrived in Bangkok from another business partner in Thailand uh, who I've built a good relationship with, and he asked if we could meet, and it was already after 10 p.m., and I was like, <laughs> I was a little exhausted. It wasn't the first thing on my, on my uh, agenda. Um, you know, I always call back to uh, a philosopher named Gabriel Marcel, who says, you know, one of the most important things we can do is be available to the other. And um, obviously, I don't want people to just waste my time, and I'm, I'm not available all the time to everybody. But I do try to be intentional about listening to, to myself when it's not convenient and it's not easy and it's somebody who matters in my life and maybe I need to, you know, invest a little more and maybe play a little hurt and just get out there and, and listen. So uh, I knew that this leader wasn't asking me to waste my time. He did have apparently had something urgent he wanted to talk to me about to connect and the funny thing is, it wasn't about business, um, which is largely how we know each other. Um, you see, our business with Excess and Amway is incredibly relational. Um, it's about the narrative of our lives. It's about building purpose into our lives through a business that we work on together, which does have a lot of numbers. And, and you know, we got to make money. We got to generate profits because that's how businesses work. Um, otherwise, it's not business. It's just a hobby or vocation. But it's really foundationally built around these, these deep relationships we create. And um, this narrative of our, lives, of our lives, the qualitative and emotional side of our lives, have much deeper and mysterious power, I believe, than the quantitative, than the things we can just measure and count. I mean, yes, that's important, but it's, it's not the thing that gives us purpose and meaning. Both matter, but in business, you often meet managers who have been trained to avoid their emotional, intuitive, and deeper selves. They only focus on what they can count, and they miss why people choose to work together in our business, why we want to be in relationship with each other, which is essentially a volunteer army when people get started. We, we, don't, you know, we don't hire people. Um, 
they create their own business and, and essentially come to work for free until they start earning something. It's because they find value in being together with us. That's why they want to be a part of what we're doing. It's like a family. Part of that's financial, but it's really the least important part in terms of what makes our relationships work. It's essentially the baseline, the starting point. The numbers are where it all kind of, you know, starts, but that's not where we're going together. So anyway, so we met and he wanted to tell me all about the impact that that this podcast I've been doing has been having on him. He loved the way that spirituality is woven into the discussion of how I've progressed and how other people I've interviewed have progressed in their lives. Um, I'm not going to use his name because he told me some pretty personal things, mainly about how he was raised in a religious environment and that although that was very helpful to him, he wasn't down on that. It was just the beginning of his spiritual journey. Um, He got into a deeply personal spiritual journey, a discussion with me that really had taken him past the religious models of spiritual truth and into a much deeper personal connection with, you know, kind of the thing behind it all, the power behind it all. You know, something many people would call God, but even God is a construct. You know, there's a reason that, in my opinion, that when, you know, the God of Abraham met Moses, he didn't give him a name that you could even, you could even verbalize very well. You know, it was all consonants. Um, I think that matters. There's a reason that in the Judaic tradition, there are no graven images because people have a tendency to worship. And we have to be careful, particularly anyone that has language. You know, the interesting thing in, a, in social anthropology is the emergence of language, of basically being able to create labels and effectively constructs for things. And worship, religion, or you know, basically religion, uh, evolved at exactly the same time. I don't think it's a, a, a deep mystery why. When we can start to label something, when we can carve it, when we can name it, we instantly will try to want to worship the greatest power that we can identify. That's how we're made. Um, so anyways, um, he was talking to me about this, and then he asked me if I would work with him on a project that he wants to kick off. And I'm not going to talk about it because it's going to be fairly anonymous and it won't be part of this podcast. But I, I'm just telling you this story um, uh, because I thought it was really cool that one of my business partners would reach out to me about something so deeply personal and spiritual. Um, and that our business, the way I try and live my life is is one life, not a, not a bunch of segmented compartments. And as a part of that, when we have this qualitative filter on the quantitative things we have to do to survive, our life can have purpose and meaning, um, just like, you know, Leading from the Gut talks about. It's, it's really powerful and it was a great experience. Um, you know, and, and it, it was a testament to what Brene Brown talked about in her TED Talk on vulnerability. You know, how transparency and authenticity allows us um, to feel worthy. Uh, and, and, and it's why I believe not just in authentic brands, but in living a vulnerable and open life that's expressed through brands and products and other outcomes that we share with the world. And if we do it in a way that offers value to somebody else, we get value back. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. Money is just one of the ways that we measure that. Um, profits are one of the ways we measure that, but it's not the things that matter fundamentally. So last week, um, oh, and let me just say too that, you know, I I think true lifestyle brands aren't invented. Uh, I really liked how Christoph and Jen Anderson talked about in that interview about creating a wine from the soil and the climate, the terroir. It's a word that is so hard for me to to read and say, it's better if I just think about it, terroir, which is a, a, a French term that means the climate and the soil together. That environment um, allows the grapes to grow in very specific ways. Different terroirs will allow different types, different varieties of grapes to flourish. And, and when they grow um, and they're shaped through fermentation and oak barrels and thyme, they turn into a finished wine, a piece of art that has a lot of science behind it. Um, you know, Christoph and I both worked at a beverage alcohol laboratory that was only about the quantitative analysis of winemaking. We specifically didn't get involved in the qualitative element, the, the art of it. That was up to the winemaker. We were giving them the numbers so they could do their art better. Um, but when we were talking about brands with Christoph, you may have noticed that he kind of backed away from the concept of a brand because brands can get so cheap and there's a lot of people in winemaking who just buy finished product and slap a label on it and call it a brand. I think he was being cautious about that because brand isn't the half of it. Um, 
the living of it is the thing. The brand ought to represent that life, that work, that expression of merging, you know, our environment and our growth and the shaping of it into something that ultimately has hopefully value not only for ourselves but for other people. So anyway, so last week I learned that a documentary film that Linda Midget created called Same God was selected to be one of 10 documentaries for the LA Film Festival in September, which is sort of a big deal. And I'm super bummed that Sarah and I can't be at the LA premiere because we, we need to be in, uh, in Europe for some other events we have to do. Um, I'm proud of it anyway. She's, it's, she created an amazing poster. Um, the trailer inspires a lot of questions about the origins of our faiths, particularly if you're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or, or um, Christian, how we listen to each other, our biases. And it sheds some light on why I think some Christians feel that their job is to take political control of the USA right now. <laughs> um, it doesn't always connect with how I read the Gospels, but you know, everyone has their own interpretations. It's a concept, there's a concept called dominionism um, that's all about this idea of taking dominion of the earth. And it's been played out in kind of some confusing ways, I think, in the last presidential election. Um, I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but it's just the application of the philosophy, the political philosophy, you know, from the theology to the philosophy to the political philosophy, it's, it seems to be a little confused um, if you dig into it. So anyways, um, this film gets into the history of evangelical Christianity and fundamentalism and how those two once distinct streams of Protestant, Protestant thought have basically merged into into one in many places and it takes place at Wheaton College um, place that we all went to school the film goes into depth about why a professor at Wheaton College was forced to resign for wearing a hijab a, you know a Muslim uh, female headscarf during Advent in solidarity with what she considers her Muslim brothers and sisters through Abraham through Ibrahim if you are Muslim um, and and I think you know uh, this this became national news in 2015 and 2016. It was uh, across um, television news, front page of newspapers. It was on the cover of Time magazine. I should probably um, also interject here a little bit about the history of these faith traditions. And this is just you know pretty much off Wikipedia. Um, I, I do have a lot of background. I was raised in a very religious home with a lot of um, church history, and 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 so you know this does kind of come naturally to me, but I wanted to just make sure everyone was playing with the same deck of cards. So I should probably interject here that, that Abraham is a biblical father figure um, who God, God kind of called out into a separate covenant. If you read what Christians would call the Old Testament or Jews might call, you know, the, <laughs> the Bible. Um, <laughs> so, he, you know, God called Abraham out into a special a separate covenant, a special relationship. And interestingly, both Jews, Muslims, and Muslims consider Abraham their father. Jews consider Abraham their father through, through Abraham's son Isaac via his wife Sarah, and Muslims via his son Ishmael through his concubine Hagar. Um, by the way, I've got a whole lot of questions for my friend Rob Bell when we finally get him on this podcast about the role of concubines in historical biblical marriage relationships <laughs> and what happened to them. <laughs> uh, but that's, that shared history is more or less undisputed by most serious historians. Like, you know, most serious historians acknowledge that Abraham, whether he actually existed or was a mythical figure, the, the narrative of Abraham is accepted by both Jews and Muslims as their inherited father. And the God that Abraham worshipped is the God that they all claim, even though they have very distinctive ways of expressing their belief and relationship with that God. Um, so Abraham is the father of two sons. Christians came, came later, starting out as a Jewish cult after you know Jesus's death, which is generally thought to have occurred around 33 AD. Um, and then the Christians split off around 70 AD from Judaism into their own faith tradition when Romans you know destroyed Jerusalem and the nation of Israel was dispersed. I'm, I'm less familiar with Islam's history. I wasn't, wasn't raised in that tradition. But Muhammad is generally thought to have formalized Islam um, or maybe made it more distinctive from its, what I'll call its Abrahamic roots around the 7th century in Mecca and Medina. So about 600 years after Jesus, um, which is you know, modern Saudi Arabia. And, and interestingly, you know, the in the Muslim and the Islam tradition, the great prophets include Jesus. In fact, there's a lot of, um, there's mosques in, in uh, southern the Philippines where uh, they actually read the Gospels, 
they effectively worship Isa, uh, which is what Jesus's name is in in um, you know in the Quran, and uh, and so if you go to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington D.C., for example, you're, you'll you'll meet Muslims there who um, are Muslim, but they also worship Isa, uh, Jesus, and because Christianity and Judaism and, and Islam are so politicized that it's not really possible to shift to a different name of your faith, but you can change out the kernel at the center of it, kind of like Christianity did in Rome with Constantine. If you go to the Pantheon in Rome, um, you know, they used to have the 12 Greco-Roman gods in there, um, you know, uh, Mars and, and uh, Zeus or, or, you know, basically all the, the, the Greco-Roman gods. And when Constantine basically, you know, said, oh, we're all Christian now, all they did in the Pantheon was just replace the sculptures of those gods with the sculptures of the Twelve Apostles. You know, the Roman pagan holidays became the Christian holidays. Nothing really changed in the life of the Romans outside of the fact that we changed everything at the core of their faith. And so, and that's kind of the history of of the Christian tradition. Um, So, all that being said... um, there is a lot of overlap between the faith traditions. There's a lot of shared history, even though even Christians, you know, internally don't always agree on what they believe, um, or Jews don't always agree on what they believe, and, and Muslims don't always agree on what they believe. Uh, there's a lot of distinction within those faith traditions, and I don't really want to get into arguing about that, but I just want to highlight the common ground that we all share here. So to sum up this brief history lesson, the the various versions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity trace their roots back to Abraham and how those sons of Abraham understood the faith that their father passed on to them. There was one Abraham, and he he worshipped one God. (laughs) That God, if the Bible is to be, you know, if you you can believe the Bible, um, referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob roughly a dozen times in the Christian, you know, at least in the Christian Bible that I was raised to read. So most Orthodox Christian scholars, you know, those from Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and mainstream Protestant faith traditions, and Muslim scholars would say that the God of Abraham is the same God that all of those traditions worship. Um, Granted, I mean, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, please listen to this, granted that each religious tradition and even the wide varieties within those traditions have significantly different beliefs about the nature of that God and our relationship with it, but the historical origin isn't really debatable. Of course, hijabs on a campus at a very conservative Christian college, Wheaton College, caused a stir, to put it mildly. People jumped to conclusions that the political science professor, Larisha Hawkins, was endorsing Islam or equating it with Christianity when she posted an image of herself wearing Muslim headgear and stating that she wanted to be in solidarity with them during Advent because of heightened persecution and fear. This was after the shootings in San Bernardino by you know extremist terrorists. Um, and she posted this on Facebook. This is her post. I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book, she wrote in a December 10, 2015 Facebook post. As Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. And by the way, um, Pope Francis's proclamations are literally Orthodox Christianity to Roman Catholics, who represent roughly fifty percent of global Christianity. So, quoting Pope Francis, you know, is a fairly well-regarded Orthodox, you know, source. Doesn't mean everybody agrees with him outside of Roman Catholicism, but you know, if you're going to argue with the Roman Catholic history of Christianity, you better have your uh, your ducks in order because because um, the Romans know what they're talking about generally when it comes to church history. To make it all much more interesting, um, Wheaton was founded by abolitionists in, the 18, in, in 1860, so before the Civil War, and its mission was all about Christianity and social justice. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. You know, so when slaves were escaping the South and had to get to Canada because if they got caught in the northern states, they could be returned to their masters. Um, it was literally a stop on the Underground Railroad where they, were, they would hide fleeing slaves. Um, they were breaking the law <laughs> in support of social justice. And, and it was the only institute of higher education in Illinois that admitted women. And in 1866, after the Civil War, the first African-American student in the state, Edward, uh, and I'm going to say his middle name wrong, Brightheit 
Sellers was the first African-American admitted to a higher education facility um, at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois in 1866. That's the foundation and the history of the school. Um, did I, I may have forgotten, did I mention that Laricia Hawkins was the first female African-American tenured professor at Wheaton College? Kind of an important little fact there. So by February 2016, literally 150 years after admitting the first African-American student, Wheaton forced its first African-American female tenured professor to resign. I wrote a long-form essay for Sojourners Magazine about this incident, my own experience at Wheaton, uh, being a part of it, uh, where I was virtually expelled for a poem, and recounted similar behaviors where the school has been behaving progressively... Um, what I would consider more irrationally for a liberal arts college, particularly with the roots that it has and the mission and values that it has, or it's supposed to have. It, it, it um, you know, it's, it, it's kicked out professors over the years for things like conversion to Catholicism, as if that's some crime, or refusing to discuss the details of their divorces because it's private, and not because of something um, that the professor had done wrong, but because the professor didn't want to embarrass their spouse. Um, and also because one professor just refused to discuss their sexual orientation with administrators, with administrators when the administrator um, tried to, you know, uh, just was on a hunting expedition and asked this uh, a professor whether or not um, they were homosexual, uh, and the professor just said it's none of your business. <laughs> um, uh, so to be clear, and by the way, without evidence. It's just it, kind of ridiculous things have been going on. So to be clear, Professor Hawkins had no issues with the college's statement of faith and reiterated her own distinctive Christian beliefs from those of Islam um, in her statements. My essay in Sojourners, and we'll link to it on the podcast, focus on the problem of social stereotypes being rationalized by religious dogma. I asked the question, what do we lose when we trade our humanity for these stereotypes? You know, if, if we're going to rely on religious dogma rather than leading from the gut and saying, wait a minute, this is hurting all of us. This is, this is making these overly rationalized decisions that are clearly at odds with the values that we have doesn't make sense. We need to take some steps back. We need to listen to each other. We need to hear what the other one's saying. And we need to find common ground and really understand what we're doing before we make rash decisions that can fundamentally uproot someone's life. Um, we, all, we all carry biases around with us. I do too. Hopefully, as we become more aware of who we are and where we come from, we also become aware of the biases that inform our thinking. Travel, meditation, particularly meditative practices that help us become aware of our own egos and identity. Intentionally listening and empathy, the act of attempting to suffer, suffer with someone to walk in their own shoes. Those are all great tools to uncover our own biases as we listen to somebody else and as we struggle maybe to break through and hear what they're saying because of things that are blocking us. Um, Nate Staniforth is a magician who was on Pete Holmes' podcast, You Made It Weird, recently. Pete's a comedian and actor. He's a friend who loves to explore the interior lives of other comedians, actors, and people of interest. He was asking Nate about a book Nate just published titled Here is Real Magic, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. Now, it's, it's funny because, you know, Nate talked a lot about illusion and how it works when you're a magician um but he also he also so that's kind of like you know inspired wonder by you know something that effectively isn't really happening um and it's it's interesting to to to, to dive into that it's, it's a great podcast to listen to um but really what he talked about was um how he had gotten burned out after a long tour of doing magic shows and wanted to go out and get lost in India to seek out magicians there from an older civilization and different culture, really kind of in search of a deeper mystery, in search of wonder. He points out in the book that real wonder comes from losing ourselves, in his case in travel, and becoming aware of the little things around us, not these magic shows that are happening. In a new place with a new people, as we immerse ourselves in their worlds and start to see things through their eyes, ultimately allowing us to see ourselves with more clarity. Allows us to take some steps back, experience something completely different. And that kind of allows us to maybe 
see the water that we're swimming in as fish we've never even realized was there the whole time, the biases that we exist in. He read an excerpt about about an hour and 35 minutes into the podcast. Pete does long podcasts. Um, that was transformative about an experience he had with his filmmaker friend Andy, who was with him. And as they bounced along in a rickshaw with a stranger they'd only met an hour before, in a place he knew not where, <laughs> this is what he read. It's only an adventure if you're willing to get lost. I had reasoned 15 minutes earlier, he, he continues. I came to understand at this particular moment that I was very lost and the romantic spirit of discovery that marks the beginning of trips like this had given way to the doubt and uncertainty found in the middle. You know, even when you're in search of wonder through a process of vulnerability, when you finally encounter being totally exposed, it can freak us all out. But... It, it's also the only way to discover and experience the transformative power of wonder around us. It's why vulnerability is so hard. One of the contrasts that Brene Brown used against vulnerability is the scientific approach of control and predictability. Um, granted, I'm giving this to science. It has been a powerful tool for good. It has eradicated disease. It has made our lives infinitely more comfortable. It has gotten rid of unnecessary superstitions. Uh, I'm giving it all that, okay? We're not arguing about that. It has made our world safer and more wonderful in many ways. But it has also killed wonder and mystery in ways that are important. When we use science as a tool for all the insights and knowledge in our lives instead of being open to things that science can't explain. You know, Brene talked about how we tend to numb pain via control methodologies. But there isn't a localized anesthetic for the, tool, for the soul. You know, we have to numb the whole person. And so we end up with, you know, literally the most medicated, obese, and addicted cohort in American history. Because when we try and escape, we lose the joy, belonging, and love that vulnerability offers. When we choose numbing rather than working through the lack of control and p predictability that vulnerability demands, um, when we choose that numbing, we lose our ability to feel worthy. Brene talked about how religion, under the weight of scientific control and predictability in our age of enlightenment, has gone from mystery to certainty in politics. Um, and um, I'm sorry, in, in, in religion has gone to mis from mystery and certain, you know, from mystery to certainty. Sorry, I'm trying to clarify that idea. So, you know, we used to have a lot of mystery in religion, and now it's like, no, this is how it is. It's, it's a true-false answer test, and I've got the answer key. And in politics, it's just gone to blame. Uh, there's no conversations anymore. There's no dialogue. It's just people shouting at each other. Uh, it's, we have a completely dysfunctional government in America. It's become, you know, the two-party system. It's just become a binary exercise in futility. Um, there is no discussion. There is no discourse anymore. So when I posted about same God... Many of my friends were quickly supportive and enthusiastic about seeing this film. They were like, oh, this is great. You know, the trailer is fantastic, by the way. You can find it on YouTube. Same God film. But some people that I know immediately jumped into an argument about their faith and how their faith was not a Muslim faith. And as such, Professor Hawkins was wrong and should have been fired from a school that has specific Christian values. You see, people's biases and certainties started firing on social media rather than having a discussion or discourse where we listen to each other and engage what the other is saying. Rather than ask questions and get clarity, we jump to conclusions. So, you know, the opposite of discourse is, in, in one way, is what's called creating a straw man. It's taking someone's point of view and creating your own argument from it that you can easily defeat. In logic classes, first or second year philosophy students are taught that this is a fallacy. It's not fair, it's not honest, and as a debate technique, it will be discarded by debate judges. It really doesn't, it really doesn't even have a place in authentic conversation. It's not polite, right? It's not civil. So before I could even return from other work to see how the post was doing, a friend of mine, Linda, actually, um, said that another person we knew from Wheaton um, had become kind of offensive in their discussion with a Muslim friend of mine and was making all sorts of unwarranted assertions about the post, um, about Muslims in general, and his regimented beliefs, his dogma is the only true path. And so I, um, I simply deleted that part of the thread pretty quickly when I saw it, and I let people know that uncivil debate um, isn't, isn't tolerated on my page. It's, just, it's not okay. You know, these are my house rules. Please disagree. I'm, I'm fine with disagreement, but you have to be civil. And you have to kind of follow some basic rules of logic and debate. You can't walk into my living room, break the glassware, and piss on my carpet, I said. 
So things settled down a bit, and, but some friends with more literal ideas about their faith kept wanting to point out to me that they worshipped a very different idea of God than the Muslims. And, and I agreed. Um, I also pointed out that Professor Hawkins agrees with that and has said as much, was very clear about this. Steve Marty, who I interviewed a few weeks ago on this podcast, sent me a piece by Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's what I would consider a fundamentalist Christian. <laughs> he reads the Bible through a very narrow and distinct point of view. Um, he has heavy, heavy biases on how he perceives the world. His piece, and he's probably very proud of them. Um, his piece was well articulated. It was a survey of the distinctions between the beliefs about uh, about God between historically orthodox Islam uh, proponents and Christians. I, I didn't disagree with his logic or even mu much of what he said about the differences. But as I said to Steve, I don't understand who he's arguing with. When we aren't vulnerable, open, and transparent, when we don't listen to the other, we end up creating versions of those people that don't represent who they are or what they're saying. We create stereotypes from our biases. We create monsters that we want to go kill so we can prove that our point is right. But a lot of times we don't even ask, wait a minute, is, is that monster real? <laughs> you know, did I just create something so I could go kill it so I could prove that my point of view is right and you should follow me? Or was I actually listening to the other person maybe recognizing we have a tremendous amount of common ground and maybe we agree more than we disagree and perhaps the argument's purely semantic. So this, 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 this Sojourner piece I wrote came out of a conversation I'd had with my family, my wife and two sons over Christmas holidays in 2015 while this hijab story was, was raging across the news media. Um, my older son Skyler was a junior at Kenyon College at the time and he asked a question that was pretty profound. He, he said, you know, what do we lose when we trade our humanity for social stereotypes that are rationalized by this religious dogma? Um, and it was one that we all talked about, Willem, my younger son, Sarah, and I. It was a great conversation, um, you know, that, that, that is so wonderful when your kids inform you and come up with these great questions to talk about. Um, Skyler was at Kenyon. It's in Ohio. It's one of America's better liberal arts colleges, maybe the best under, you know, one, certainly one of the best undergraduate literature degrees you can get. And it was founded a few years before Wheaton by Episcopalian Christians, you know, the Church of England in America although the school has since become quite secular. Schuyler had been in a 19th century U.S. fiction class that semester and had read an essay by Ralph Allison, 20th Century Fiction in the Black Mass of Humanity, which explores issues of race, bigotry, stereotypes, and humanity. In that essay, Ellison looks at how Mark Twain handles the change in American culture around African-American identity in Huckleberry Finn. Huck wrestles with whether or not to embrace the social bigotry of antebellum Southern culture, so pre-Civil War Southern culture, and of course where slavery was legal and there were the, some pretty awful ideas about race and stereotypes that were deeply tied to the religious dogma of its time. The churches, the pastors, were often, you know, rationalizing this and pointing out scripture passages that proved, you know, um, that African Americans didn't have the same status as white Americans. And so the big question that, uh, that, that Huck had to answer as he and his runaway friend Jim, his runaway slave friend Jim, are traveling on a raft down the Mississippi River, he has to answer the question whether or not he's going to let him escape. So Huck has two choices, either write a letter to Widow Watson, Jim's owner, and have him return to her or let Jim run free. The problem for Huck is that he'd been traveling with Jim on a raft down this mighty Mississippi, getting completely and utterly lost in a magnificently wonder-filled adventure. And we still read these books today. They're classics in American literature. His inherited ideas and biases had, begun, had really be, begun to become blown apart through an authentic and vulnerable relationship with Jim. And the old ideas, the rules, and the dogma didn't fit his experience anymore. This is what Twain writes about that moment of decision. It was a close place, he tells us. I took the letter up and held it in my hand. I was trembling. So this is in, in Huck's voice. I'll, I'll, st I'll start over. It was a close place, he tells us. I took the letter up and held it in my hand. I was trembling because I'd, I'd got to decide forever twixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, I'm doing a poor job of a southern accent, all right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they was said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. 
I shoved the whole thing out of my head and said, I wouldn't take up wickedness again. I'm sorry, I said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line being brung up to it, and the other weren't. And for a starter, I would steal Jim out of slavery again. What Huck did here is he basically rejected the dogma, the religion that he had been raised in, the rules that he had been raised around because his experience had transformed him. Getting lost had transformed him on this adventure with his new friend, Jim, and he was able to see and experience and hear this other person, not slave, but person. And so he had to reject all these rules and these inherited laws that didn't make sense anymore. And he had to create something new, a new wickedness, as he calls it, as he breaks his friend out of slavery and into freedom. You know, Wheaton chose to trade its humanity, its ability to be vulnerable, to have empathy, to intentionally listen for a stereotype and a bias from a dehumanizing religious construct when they forced Laricia Hawkins out and chose to silence her voice on campus. The Same God film explores how and why that happened and bigger themes about what's happening in evangelical Christianity today, how fundamentalism has taken over and why those ideas have gotten so involved in the current U.S. presidential administration. It asks more questions than it answers. It provides the historical roots of those ideas and hopefully, and I really mean this, I, I hope it creates a forum where people who want to hear each other to intentionally listen to people they might disagree with can come together and find some common ground. At the time I wrote my piece for Sojourners, I assumed that the racism embedded in Wheaton's response to Professor Hawkins was inherent and passive, that it wasn't intentional. Um, I didn't think you know, that these were bad people intentionally going out and trying to hurt her. I thought that they were, you know, they were you know, kind of slave, enslaved to their own biases and dogma. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't see it as an act of racism. But then, <laughs> on January 10th, 2016, my mind was kind of blown. Time Magazine broke a news story that included email correspondence between Wheaton psychology professor Michael Mangus, who's also in the film, by the way, uh, and has also been treated a lot like Larisha Hawkins, and the provost, Stan Jones, where Jones said that Hawkins' post was innocuous. He, literally the provost who attacked her and created a witch hunt, said her post was innocuous in the email. Um, and again, despite later creating a witch trial, due, due to the uproar from the fundamentalist alumni and students who wanted to assert their position on the difference between the faiths, which again, Hawkins never disagreed with. And despite the majority of Wheaton's professors backing Hawkins' statement as clearly within the boundaries of the school statement of faith, um, Gary Berge, a, a New Testament scholar uh, and professor at the school at Wheaton, said, hers is a clear, compelling affirmation of what we believe in Wheaton's statement of faith. So the experts on the New Testament, the experts on the statement of faith, are saying, she's affirming it. She's with it. She hasn't, she hasn't broken faith with us. She hasn't said that it, she hasn't equated Islam and Christianity. She hasn't said that we worship the same way or that we have the same um, religious construct, the same theology. She's just saying, we both share the same, you know, Abraham's God. We believe it, we understand it differently. We worship it differently. But it's, just like Pope Francis said, it's the same God. And yet, Stan Jones continued his prosecution of Hawkins and forced her out. Not because of theological facts, and by the way, uh, the president, Phil Riken, jumped in with him and supported him and was part of that process. Not because of theological facts or disagreement over theology, but because of an angry mob of conservative donors who demanded her head. The furor was because an African-American woman wore a hijab and pointed to the historic common ground that children of Abraham have despite our different beliefs and faith traditions. She wanted to practice empathy during Advent. Advent being the time when God is made man, when, when if you believe the stories, when God says, I'm going to become like one of them so I can understand what the heck is going on down there, so I can suffer with them, so I can walk in their shoes, so I can come participate in the suffering and the pain and be with them and support them and help them find a way through it, help them break through barriers and join me and have a relationship with me again. Vulnerability and intentional listening aren't just important for personal development. It's even more important when we have positions of power so that we can monitor our own bias and judgment, so we can walk in the shoes of people who come from a very different place than we do. 
Um, Satya Nadella is the CEO of Microsoft. He's become famous for his transformation of that company, replacing the bombast and quantitative management of Steve Ballmer with a more holistic approach to the company culture and work, uh, to their relationships as a company together. He wrote a book called Hit Refresh, which is brilliant. There was a great article about him and his work in Fast Company. I'd recommend reading it. It's, what he did was unbelievable. Nadella was faced with a company whose stock value was down. During Balmer, the stock was just going sideways or dropping. There was a tremendous, there was just huge infighting in the company. Um, different departments were focused on scarce resources, cost cutting, and battling for what was available rather than the shared work towards a common goal uh, based on common ground, shared values, and moving together in the same direction to create more value, more wealth, and to live abundantly, which is what entrepreneurship is all about and entrepreneurship culture should only be about. What Nadella did was to shift the focus off the numbers, off the quantitative analysis, and refocus on the more important values, the qualitative measures that would pull the internal company relationships together again. He focused the company on three values, empathy, so you have to stand in your coworkers, partners, and customers' shoes if you want to offer value to them, inclusion, if you're going to be a global company, you better have a big tent where everyone can feel welcome, particularly people who are different than you, and especially when you don't have the same values. And the third one is a commitment to lifelong learning. If change is the new constant and it's speeding up, you better, um, you, you know, the only way you're going to find continuous progress is through listening, through integrating knowledge and understanding. It's going to be essential. Nadella also made the entire company read Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication. It's a book about empathetic communication, not judging but limiting commentary purely to observable facts. So you can't say that's dumb or that's stupid or, um, you know, uh, or even like that makes me angry. Those are all judgments. And he calls that violent communication. He says you can only, you know, only use observable facts in communication with other people, particularly people you disagree with or might have a, uh, you know, might not share common ground with. Um, it turns out it's pretty hard to do. You can check out his videos on YouTube, workshopping how to practice nonviolent, non-attacking communication. There's a lot of kumbaya in there, but it's really, really powerful stuff. It's, it's worth a, it's worth a, a watch. Um, I was intrigued by this qualitative approach, but my critical analytics side, my quantitative investor mind asked, yeah, but how is Microsoft doing when I heard about all this stuff going on? Fortunately, my wife, Sarah, had bought a, a nice block of Microsoft stock in our personal investment for, portfolio because Microsoft um, has almost tripled in value since Nadella took over in 2014. With a start stock market value today of over $800 billion, putting the company at number four, only behind Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet, <laughs> the three A's. What's also interesting is his business strategy. Nadella inherited a flat to poorly performing business buried in legacy products and brands that couldn't stop focusing on the past in order to embrace the future. Um, you know, he literally had to cannibalize the existing legacy business and stop investing in it. The cloud computing, the software as a service, he had to he had to cannibalize Windows sales, which were more expensive and had more margin, in order to move into the future. That's where the growth was going to be. That's where the future was going to be. Um, and so, you know, and he also had to get rid of a, a, an awful acquisition, uh, the Nokia acquisition, because um, you know it wasn't working. Um, Apple or Apple was crushing them. Other, you know, Samsung, uh, Huawei were also just crushing them in the mobile phone business. They had to get rid of this acquisition they had gotten into with Nokia and focus instead on software as a service, cloud computing, and mobile first for their applications. Um, so he had a lot of work to do, a lot of hard work, and there was a lot of analytical work that had to happen. But first, he had to get every he had to get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus the values aligned, get people listening to each other, sharing common ground and moving in the same direction before they could make big progress and have quantum growth on, in the quant, in the, in the numbers. Um, because, you know, Nadella already had the values of, and practices of empathy, intentional listening, and non-violent communication with inclusion, he could make bold, strategic, transformative business decisions with a newly aligned team. He was already doing this stuff. This wasn't; these weren't new values to him, but he helped the company reshape its focus on something that would help them move together to be bigger and better than they could be alone as as silos of a business. And that 
was what allowed him to lead the transformation from a qualitative approach that resulted in a quantum leap in quantitative value. <laughs> That's a lot of quals and quants. But basically, the values allowed them to make the, the massive leap in numbers. Being available, listening, and putting ourselves in another's shoes creates opportunities to create quantum leaps in things we can measure that we can't reach by focusing on the numbers alone. So let me wrap this up with a vulnerable story about how I wasn't hearing what people I loved were saying and how I had to leave my arguments, my ego, to see my bias and embrace a bigger truth. And I, I really hate it that I did this, and so it's, um, it's not, I don't enjoy this part of the, the podcast. When the Black Lives Matter movement popularized and then became a lightning rod for controversy, my first question, just kind of watch, watching news highlights, from my point of view as a white male was, wait a minute, don't, don't all lives matter? Why do black lives matter more, right? As a white person, say, well, wait a minute, what's going on over there? How come, how come it's not all lives matter? How come, you know, et cetera. And I got into kind of an ugly discussion on, uh, on a holiday trip with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and it was, I, I take all the responsibility, I wasn't listening. Um, probably fueled by, you know, a few cocktails. It was just, you know, it wasn't good behavior. They were trying to explain to me that it's not Black Lives Matter more. It's simply that Black Lives Matter too. Huge distinction. That black men in particular have very different interactions for even routine traffic stops than white men do. Interactions that have ended in unnecessary civilian deaths with increased frequency. There's a point where it's more than an anomaly and it becomes a horrific trend and people say enough is enough. The stereotypes and biases and resulting violence have to end. Fortunately, my wife and kids had enough grace and love and patience with me to help me hear it. My good friend Rob Bell interviewed Opal Tometi, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, on his podcast and actually listening to their conversation, putting my bias aside and intentionally listening, listening help me break through all my self-inflicted barriers. I will add there was some conversa side conversation with my wife as we were listening to it, and she is very patient with me, and she helps me listen. Um, women are much better at it than men in general, because I think, well, because I think women have, don't have egos that get in the way as much. Maybe the testosterone's less. I don't know. I'm not a, a psychiatrist, but it just seems like women listen a lot better. The ultimate goal in making and sharing this film um, I'm so, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So to wrap it all up, the reason I got so personally, financially, and creatively involved with Linda, Kathy, and Abigail and Same God was because I actually believe in what Wheaton's founders stood for, empathy, inclusion, and learning, as well as the things they stood against, angry bias based on stereotypes of hate that hurt the victim and perpetrator alike. It lessens us all as humans and as people when we embrace these stereotypes rationalized by religious dogma. The ultimate goal in making, showing, and sharing this film at film festivals this fall and at colleges and then via mass distribution um, is to get people listening to each other about race, religion, and politics, to have debate and dialogue, probably some controversy, and perhaps, hopefully, regain our civility and humanity in the process. This is an interactive project. Please send me messages and emails at kickaspirational on Instagram or at David58, D-A-V-E-E-D 58 on Instagram. Uh, this is my personal one. Or you can also, so those are the two Instagrams, or you can also go to my own Facebook page, David Vanderveen, um, or david at kickaspirational.com on email. Please stay in touch. Please be kickaspirational. I hope this is helpful. Break through barriers in your own life because that is what this podcast is all about.